Thank you. It is indeed a, a great privilege for me to be here. As, as Pastor said, I, we've known each other probably for 20 years, and, and I've known about this ministry for many, many years. In fact, I remember hearing uh, Pastor Bob Potter speak uh, at, uh, when I was a student at Bob Jones University and uh, knew then about the ministry and have had opportunity through, to follow the, the, this church and also Arch Ministries and the other, the other outreaches and activities that you're involved in. So it is a joy for me to be here. My name is David Shoemate. In just a moment, I'll, I'll give a presentation with PowerPoint to kind of give you a sense of who I am and who we are uh, as a ministry. But I did want to say thank you so much for the invitation and for the wonderful hospitality and really for the challenge and testimony that you've been to me uh, personally as I'm seeing how the Lord is really doing a great work here in your hearts with regard to... Um, being the kind of people you need to be in Christ Jesus and then representing him in a way that brings glory to him and also brings people to him. And so thank you again uh, for, the, uh, for the invitation. Uh, let me go ahead and we can start, first of all, with the presentation. And then I have a, a bit of a challenge from the Word of God for you this evening. Okay, we are uh, the Shoemates, David and Linda. And uh, I regret that my wife cannot be here. She, um, she teaches in Christian school, and therefore, um, they've just uh, started up with their in-service, and so, uh, but uh, she sends her greetings. And uh, we, uh, we were both saved while we were in graduate school. Um, we both grew up in homes where there was some um, Christian background, but I wouldn't say either of us attended a Bible, genuinely Bible-preaching church. Uh, and uh, we met in college, and I was studying political science, and she was studying chemistry, and, and uh, we, uh, we got married that summer and decided to go to graduate school. I was going to law school, and she was going to study graduate school in chemistry. So um, that next year, uh, I ran into, it's a, kind of a long story, but I ran into a fellow student, fellow law student who was a graduate of Bob Jones University, and um, we got to talking, and the Lord did some other things as well. Um, uh, in terms of us meeting some people. But uh, I remember I had grown up believing that you were saved by faith. I mean, I, I believed the basic facts of the gospel. But I thought faith was just intellectual assent, agreement. And I said, well, of course I'm a Christian. You know, I believe these things are true. But there was no personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, I really like the word trust because it really reflects the biblical concept of faith, right? You believe that something is so, but then you also put your trust in the person that's represented by that, by that truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I was talking with my, my friend there, and I told him what I believed, and he said, well, he said, if you die tonight, do you know for sure whether you'd go to heaven? And I said, no. And he said, uh, well, if you really believed what you say you believe, you would know. And that just kind of got me, you know? And so I'm thinking about that and thinking about that. And a couple of weeks go by, and uh, we visited a church that they were attending, and I met a, a fella who was um, coming up to plant a church there, and a friend of his, and we talked a little bit. And, um, and so I remember one afternoon, I was uh, working a summer job, and I said, you know, I, I just, it kept bothering me. So I said, I've just got to get by myself and think. Of course, I wasn't by myself. The Holy Spirit was with me. So I was eating at Arthur's Seafood Restaurant in Cambridge, uh, I mean, Boston, Massachusetts. And, um, and I realized that I really had to decide, I had to trust Christ. I mean, it felt like it was a moral imperative. 
And I realized, and I just realized that I had a decision to make. I was either going to accept him or reject him. And it was at that point that I called out and asked God to save me based on, based on the work of Jesus Christ. And I knew I was forgiven. I mean, I knew it. The instant, I, I, it was like I was a new person. Um, it's like uh, I'd never read Pilgrim's Progress. I really wasn't even sure what it was. I remember as a kid, I kind of thought Pilgrim's Progress was about the pilgrims, <laughs> how they got to America and how they made progress. You know? and I, but, but Bunyan describes a, a scene when he gets to the foot of the cross and the pack that had been ever growing on his back, that burden fell off his back. And that's the way I, I felt. It was like a huge burden had been lifted. I don't know if you've ever, um, you've ever been carrying something very heavy for a long time, and then you finally get to put it down. Or you've ever been stand on your feet for a long time, and you finally get to sit down. And, and the relief, you don't realize how burdened you were until you're able to get rid of the burden. And that's the way I felt. And in fact, I was, just, I was happy. And I, I, remember, I remember thinking, I wonder if I look different. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror, no such luck. You know, <laughs> got to wait. Some people have to wait for the rapture and glorification and all that to, to be uh, that transformed. But I, I, I do think, by the way, this is an aside, and I don't want to take all the time with this, but I, have you ever noticed that sometimes people do look different after they're saved? There's something in the eyes. You ever seen before and after pictures? There's sometimes a hardness in the eyes of people that don't know the Lord Jesus because it's almost like we're putting, we got a mask on, right? We've got to make everyone think everything's cool. But inside, there's all this uh, uh, turmoil and everything. So, uh, so then the next thing I thought, or a little later that afternoon, I thought, you know, I've got to tell my wife. So I got home, and she had been... Uh, she, she was uh, studying uh, that summer, doing some lab work, and I got home, and we were talking, and I, I said, and I just tried to tell her what happened to me, and of course, I didn't have any of the vocabulary, I didn't have any terminology really to use, but I just said, and I told her what happened, I said, and then I just asked God to forgive me, and he forgave me, and then I didn't know what to say, so I said, does that ever happen to you? And she says, I think it has, and I said, really, when? She said, two days ago, and I said, really? <laughs> And she said that uh, the fellow, the pastor, was coming to plant the church uh, when, when we were all kind of talking together. He had mentioned to her, he had said, why don't you do, do something? He said, Get, read the Gospel of John and just tell God you'll do whatever he tells you to do. And so she did. And she was reading through the Gospel of John, and she trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. And, of course, that's, John says that's why the book is there, right? It's that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. And so we started growing, and we, as I think about it now, we were discipled. I didn't know that's what that was called, but those two families just really got around us and really encouraged us and helped us and discipled us. And after about a year, God really been working in me about, about the ministry, mainly with regard to the Word of God, it just gave me a love for the Word of God. I just wanted to study it and teach it and preach it. And so um, it took a period of time, but eventually we went to seminary in South Carolina, and... Um, and uh, I finished law school because my pastor said, you should finish what you start. And, um, but I uh, went to South Carolina and then uh, uh, began uh, attending seminary and went through that and ended up on pastoral staff uh, as assistant pastor of a church there. And then uh, over time, God began working in my heart about reaching out to the Hispanic population uh, in a number of different ways uh, with regard to teaching on the mission field and a lot of Hispanic people were moving around us, uh, moving to where we lived, and so found them very open to the gospel and so began to be interested. And in 2005, I was asked to be the director of, uh, of uh, MGM. And so we'll get into that a little bit. But that's a little bit of our testimony. We've been living in Phoenix, Arizona for the last 12 years uh, as part of that uh, ministry. 
But we are part of uh, MGM International. Originally was Mexican Gospel Mission. And then the Lord is, is doing some things here in the United States as well and giving us some opportunities for certain kinds of ministry in other countries. So before I got involved, they said, well, we'll go, we'll change it to MGM International. But uh, uh, most people still know us as Mexican Gospel Mission, and that's just, just fine with me. That's a, that's a lot easier to remember. And, and they don't think that you own big hotels and make films and <laughs> stuff like that. Now, the uh, passing the baton, that's a deliberate uh, emphasis. And, and that's really the emphasis I want to stress with you uh, this evening. Um, if people didn't know what pastors did, it would be hard for a pastor very briefly to describe what he does because he does lots of stuff, right? Well, you, you sit in meetings and you work with budgets and then and you talk to people about their spiritual needs and you study the Bible and then you prepare and preach sermons and then you're, you're, you go and you, you perform uh, weddings and then you have funerals and then there are the ordinances. And if people didn't already know what a pastor does, it would be kind of hard to explain all that in just a short period of time. And the similar, uh, I think, with regard to being a mission director, People aren't familiar with that. They don't know the kinds of things you do. But just, just in a nutshell, in a nutshell, we are facilitators. It's essentially what we do. Mission agencies help local churches and missionaries and mission projects um, be more effective in doing what God has called them to do. Uh, and as a director, I work with the folks, uh, with the people on the team. But also, we are supported missionaries with the ministry, and therefore, uh, we have our own ministry. of Largely, it's theological teaching and training. And uh, also, as a ministry, we're burdened to help churches and other ministries develop outreach to Hispanics uh, in the United States. And those are just some of the things that we are involved in. But, um, but the real emphasis I wanted to give you this evening is on this idea of passing uh, the baton. I remember years ago watching, I believe it was an Olympics, not a world championship, I believe it was an Olympics, and it was the 4 by 100 meter uh, relay. And that's my, that's my favorite event in track and field because those people fly around the track, right? You've got, they run 400 meters, but each one only runs 100 meters. And so they're full out sprint all the way around the track. And it's just incredibly exciting. And of course, you've got all this activity because they're passing the baton every 100 meters. And I, rem I remember going back and looking it up. And virtually almost every year since, since the beginning of the 1900s, almost every year, the United States has won, had won that event. Uh, more recently, Jamaica has really come on and, and, and become very strong in that event. And the times when they didn't win uh, were various circumstances, but uh, the main uh, reason was they, they messed up on the baton pass. And I got to thinking about that. You know, that's a great metaphor for the Great Commission. You can run as effectively as you possibly can run, but if you do not pass the baton, then the race will not be won. And the other thing is, baton passing has to take place within a prescribed space. You have to both be in the same space to pass the baton. Now, you can use that metaphor for a lot of things, including discipling. You have a certain opportunity to disciple people, and, and God has opened that door. He's given you that lane, and you've got to get it done in that space. And if you don't do it, then, then the, the race will be hindered. But the same is true in missions. The same is true writ large. When we're involved in missions, I remember um, some of you may know Mark Vowles, formerly a missionary for a while, to, uh, was planning to go to Cuba, then working with Bob Jones University in their missions program. But he said one time that the, uh, he said that the, 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 the mission work is not done until you have fully committed, fully committed the Great Commission responsibility, responsibility to those you have, you have reached. 
In other words, reaching people in a certain mission field. That's not, that you haven't done, you're not done yet. Planting churches, you're not done yet. See, discipling people, you're not done yet. You're not done until they are essentially able then to take that same responsibility that you're fulfilling and then they fulfill it. Amen. You're working yourself out of a job. It's like, it's like rearing children, right? We don't rear our children to be good children. We're supposed to rear them to be good parents, right? And so, of course, that task takes longer. And so we are very, very burdened about this concept of getting the baton passed in the Latin American context and the Hispanic ministry context. And you'll see a little bit as we go along uh, how we're focusing on that. That's the MGMI team, um, and uh, most of them. And uh, it's really a blessing to work with this group, um, serving in various places, some in the United States, some in Mexico. Um, and uh, we're really blessed to be a part of the MGMI team. Now, how did Mexican Gospel Mission get started? Well, the gentleman on your left is, was named Leonardo Mercado, I would say Leonard Mercado. And when he was 10, his family came to the United States from Mexico. And this was in around 1910, around the time of the Mexican Revolution. Let me put it this way, when he was a boy, he came to the States. I think he was about that age. And uh, they moved to Williams, Arizona. And a neighbor, friend of his, little boy, invited him to go to a Bible-preaching Methodist church, and he heard the gospel, and he received Christ. And um, God called him to the ministry. Uh, he, he did some studies, and he and his wife were serving in Phoenix, Arizona, under what was then the, um, the American Baptist churches. This was in the 1920s, and it was a kind of a center, a Hispanic center, and they were trying to reach out to the Mexican population. But they kept pressuring him to, to de-emphasize the preaching of the gospel and to emphasize social work. You know, that historically, that was kind of going on at that time. And eventually, he said, I just can't do this. I've got to preach the gospel. So some, they and some other families in the ministry said, well, they said, well, we believe that, that way, Pastor, too. So they began the uh, uh, Mexican or the Iglesia Evangelica Mexicana, the Mexican Evangelical Church, because they wanted to preach the gospel. And that was started in 1930. And they, 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 they ministered in various locations in the Phoenix area. And not too long after that, they began reaching out to other uh, locations in, around Phoenix and even into northern Mexico a little bit. And so they decided they needed to found the Mexican Gospel Mission. And so the Mexican Gospel Mission was founded around that time. And uh, on the right is Dr. Dick Mercado when he was a young man. He, you can see there, he was the evangelista. He was the evangelist uh, under his father's ministry. And eventually, he became the pastor of the church and also the director of the, uh, of the Mexican Gospel Mission, which got involved in different things, including the founding of a Bible institute, the uh, Ebenezer Bible Institute in Hermosillo, Sonora, Mexico, which is about 350 miles south of Phoenix. And, uh, and so served in that ministry for a long period of time. And then in 2005, he, he approached me at a conference and asked if I would consider becoming the general director of the Mexican uh, Gospel Mission. Uh, the church is still in existence, and we are members of that church. It's located in a part of Phoenix known as Little Mexico, and um, it's a bilingual uh, ministry uh, that is reaching out into the community. Um, it's quite an interesting church, uh, actually, the, uh, they have a, a, an English service, a smaller English service in the morning while they have Spanish Sunday school, and then they have a time of uh, Mexican sweet bread and donuts and coffee 
and then they switch, they flip, and they have the uh, English service. I mean, the English Sunday school and the Spanish service. And then in the evening, it's a fully bilingual service. And if you've been in a bilingual service, uh, in this service, they we sing the hymns that are in both languages. So they put both sides up, and you just pick whichever one you want to sing. You sing, and uh, it's really, <laughs> of course, the Lord understands, right? He understands it all, um, and. Uh, so if I'm feeling kind of Spanish, I sing in Spanish. I'm feeling kind of English, I sing in English, you know. And uh, then the pastor preaches in both English and Spanish. He tra- interprets for himself. And, uh, and uh, so it's just, and then Wednesday evening, they have uh, different programs and activities. The, typically, the children and youth programs are in English because the second generation Hispanics are typically speaking English, along with many of them speak Spanish. But it's, 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 it's got great Mexican food. So I love the hot sauce and the tacos and all that. In fact, if you want to joke, you can say, okay, why do Mexicans go to Taco Bell? It's to eat American food, <laughs> okay? <laughs> because that's not really Mexican food, see? Anyway, so you can tell that sometime if you want to. Um, but uh, it's a blessing to be a part of that ministry. Uh, and, and in fact, that's an essential part of what we do. Uh, the, the mission is independent from the church, but we really do work together in, in very uh, close ways. Uh, my wife is uh, involved uh, heavily in the music ministry of the church and also works uh, with the children's program. Uh, she teaches the, on Wednesday nights the three to five-year-olds, and it's interesting. Some of them come in at three, and they're not speaking any English, and then by the time they're five, they're oftentimes speaking a lot of English because they're in either preschool or kindergarten or whatever, but that's, uh, she's been uh, a great uh, blessing there at the church. And uh, because of my travels, that's the English Sunday school class, because of my travels, um, I, uh, I, I don't have the kind of an ongoing heavy ministry there of public presence, but I am able to teach in the English Sunday School. And, uh, and I think one of the biggest opportunities I have is to really work together with, with our pastor, and that's been a real blessing. That's uh, our pastor, Pastor Steve Rubio, and his son, Benny. Um, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the Lord is really doing a great work in the ministry there. Uh, Pastor Steve and uh, he's one of triplets, and his two brothers were saved in the youth ministry of the church. And, um, and he studied at a Bible institute in Mexico and came back and has been, now been pastoring the church for about seven years and doing a wonderful, uh, wonderful work. And it's a privilege to be able to work together with him. Uh, that's uh, him, and I can't remember which side. I can tell him from his, from his twin brother um, now, but I couldn't tell him then. <laughs> so... That's both of them there, and they're, they're ministering down in Mexico. As I mentioned, they, they attended and studied at the Bible Institute uh, in Hermosillo. And that's one of the ministries that I think is, uh, is having one of the biggest impacts of, of anything that we do, is the training of leaders through the, um, through the, uh, um, uh, the Ebenezer Bible College and now seminary. They have uh, two graduate programs there uh, as well. Um, as I mentioned, located in Hermosillo, Sonora, Mexico, a city of about 800,000 people in the desert of Sonora. So the climate is very much like our climate in Phoenix, hot and dry. And it's interesting the way the Lord is working. This is Isaac Alvarez. He's a, he's a former student and is now pastoring and uh, a, a, a church that's really doing, um, the Lord is really doing some things in their church there, uh, Betania, in, uh, in Hermosillo. And there are other graduates as well uh, that are serving and one of the great blessings is to see how the Lord is using people who are uh, graduates of the Institute to serve the Lord. That's a, that's a church there north of Mexico City, and another graduate uh, whose name is Ismael, um, and, 
and, uh, uh, and they're having, the Lord is really doing a great work there uh, as well. Um, one thing I just wanted to mention, and there are many other, many other things I could, I could mention, um, uh, 22, they're, they're graduates of the Institute in 22 of the 32 states uh, in Mexico, and, uh, and the Lord is really, really using that in a great way. I did want to say something about church planting, and this is not in any way a knock on Americans planting churches in Latin America. There's still a need for church planting that way, I believe. But what I've noticed is that Mexican churches plant churches, and they plant them rapidly. And one reason is what you see. That's a church. And what happens is, and that church got going, they started meeting with children in the park, right? And tree number one is you have this group, and tree number two, you have that group, and it was, it was just that way. So they just started going. And then eventually they said, well, we need a place to meet, so they rented a house. And this was a little house they rented, and then that's the courtyard of the house, and so they just put a, put a tent structure up, and they just have service. They just go do it. Uh, missionaries are kind of the same way. If someone's going to go to another city and plant a church, he just gets, talks to the churches, and he, and he gives them a bank account number, and off he goes. And uh, I'm not saying that they don't need to develop more planning like the way we do, right? Because there are some needs, especially as they start reaching in other countries, and it gets more complicated and all that. But there is a freshness about it, and they do have a real, they've tapped into the culture, and they understand how you don't have to have all the stuff we feel like we need to have in order to develop a ministry. And so uh, what I'm saying is that the Lord is really using the Mexican churches to plant more churches and to send out missionaries. Now, that's encouraging, right? That's like when your grandkids graduate from college or something, right? I mean, that's when you start really saying, wow, this is really, this is really happening. And so I'm very much encouraged by that. And so part of what we're doing is seeing how we can be more effective at, at a subsidiary or support role Right? Just as when your parents, your role in the life of your children changes. You're always going to be their parent, right? And you're always going to be, be, be helping them and praying for them and ministering to them. But the way you do that changes. When they're little, you're very directive and you're very hands-on and very specific. And as they get older, you're giving them more and more space. And then eventually they get married, they move out of your house. And then you're sort of like saying, by the way, could I offer you some advice? Your, your, your role changes, and I, I feel like in missions, that's true too. If we're not willing to adapt to the growth of the mission field, then I, I think we're going to stop being effective. And worse, we're going to start hindering the work. It's like trying to keep them in your basement, trying to keep them home, trying to keep them little, right? And, uh, and uh, that's not, I think, uh, a good approach. So whatever we do with regard to the mission field, I believe we have to think very carefully about what stage that ministry is in order to be able to serve the Lord. Now, the Institute also began, as part of that, began a graduate program. Graduates of the Institute and others who had been in the ministry for some years decided, you know, we need more. This is, this is great, but we need to get more. So they started using modular classes. And there was a time, up until just a few years ago, that was about the only way you could do it. You had to go for a week and teach. Um, now, of course, with the Internet and everything, you've got a lot more opportunities. But back then, so they, they began establishing a Master of, of Arts in... Um, I mean, a Master of Ministry degree, and that's Bruce McAllister there. Some of you may know him. And uh, just one of the classes that was being taught. And so January and June, they would teach these classes and been doing that now for, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking, at least 15 years as part of the ministry. Uh, I went and taught a couple classes. That's Dan Wackety there on the side. He was the, um, he was the academic dean. Um, 
that was a gag. Um, he, um, I kept saying, you know, if, 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 I, if I eat more chili, my Mexican, my, my Spanish accent will improve. So he gave me every kind of chili sauce that he could think to buy. And some of that stuff, I think, must be radioactive. I didn't take a Geiger counter to it. Um, I, I was afraid to put it anywhere uh, where it might, you know, eat through the, the shelf. But uh, that was a blessing. And uh, there is Dan. And, and what he's got there, he's got that set up. He's developing, began developing the internet as a possibility for the, more theological training. And this is a program called the Master of Arts in Teaching Bible. Uh, we had some discussions. He got burdened, I got burdened, that we needed something to help institutes and seminaries and Bible colleges train their teachers to be able to teach better. See, because, because if you're, you know, you, you, know, you can only teach to the level where you are, right? And if you're not improving, if you're not growing, if you're not advancing, then you're not going to be able to teach effectively. So they began that program, and they began reaching out to graduates who couldn't come and be there at the program, but they're using the various techniques um, of the internet to be able to reach out to those students. And that's an example of some of the different people who were attending one of the classes um, that I was teaching there. I was actually teaching that from Phoenix, and they were having the main group of class in Hermosillo, and then they had other people in different parts uh, who were attending the class. And that's been a real blessing and encouragement. This is Josue Guzman and his wife, Hasmin. Uh, Josue is, is super sharp, and he is the new academic dean of the college. And he's been, uh, he's been doing graduate work uh, through online through Maranatha and is moving toward a PhD and fully capable of getting that level of training. Um, and uh, and uh, I really believe that he's got tremendous uh, potential uh, in terms of future leadership for uh, certainly the seminary program and even potentially the entire, uh, the entire ministry. That has led Brother Dan to develop a ministry called Team Mobile Seminary, where, where he's going to be spending, he's going to be based in the United States and he's going to be spending his time trying to help ministries in Mexico and other places in Latin America develop and further develop their theological training. So he's moving into more of a support role to be able to multiply what the Lord has been doing uh, in Hermosillo and other places. Uh, that's a graduate of IPE, and I, I'm uh, not really that good about selfies, but for some reason, if you turn it like that way, it's supposed to be cooler, so that's what he did. Um, he's a graduate of the Institute um, of the, and of the um, Ebenezer Bible College, and I wanted to mention him because he then went to another ministry in a city, large city in Mexico, San Luis Potosí, and there's a large, uh, a large and effective ministry there. And he began to be a part of that church. But he has started now what they call Escuela de Traductores, which is a school, they call it School of Translators, where they are working to try to translate uh, the Bible into the different dialects of the, of the indigenous people in, in Mexico. His name is Dante Gonzalez. He also happens to be the best friend of my son-in-law, who's from Mexico, but that's another story. And then he invited me to come and teach the... Uh, the folks in that program, but also the teachers in the Christian school uh, there uh, in San Luis Potosí and also in their Bible Institute on um, como uh, um, uh, predicar y enseñar del Antiguo Testamento, how to preach and teach from the Old Testament. So that was that course. Um, interestingly, um, the Lord is raising up leaders of leaders, right? 
In other words, those who can then produce other leaders. It's just like Paul commanded Timothy. The things you've heard of me among many witnesses, commit those things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And, and so, uh, for example, these are all graduates of the Institute, so they're now serving in various foreign countries, including Spain, Equatorial Guinea, and Panama, and Ghana. By the way, um, you, know, you know the game three have something in common and one doesn't, you know how to play that? Can you tell me which of those countries does not have something, those three of those countries have something in common and the other one doesn't? Can you tell me? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. Spain, of course, and, and Panama, but also Equatorial Guinea are Spanish-speaking countries. But Miguel Triano is in Ghana, West Africa. And this to me is super exciting because, because the, the, uh, apart from the different tribal languages, the main language in Ghana, Africa is what? Do you know? English. So he went to Africa and learned to speak English. And he speaks like a West African. I think that's great. <laughs> you know? And you say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The, the missions doesn't work that way. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. And so it's super exciting. And um, the Lord is even doing some other things. Um, this is Isaac Luna and his family. Um, we joke that he looks like, this, looked like the Mexican Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> but um, anyway, you've seen pictures of Spurgeon. But, um, but uh, a leader in the institute and the ministry there and um, serving, pastoring a church there, God got a hold of his heart. They took, they took mission team. I think that's one of the teams going, one of the mission teams that they took. But they took a mission team to Ghana. They raised the money from the Mexican churches and from the folks there in the institute, and they actually went on a mission team to help the missionary in Ghana. And God got a hold of his heart, and he is burdened now to go to South Sudan. And the plan is, that first of all, they're getting their training in primitive mission uh, work in Mexico, and then the plan is to go serve in, in Ghana with Brother Triano first before they, they, they make the move into South Sudan, which, as you know, is a very difficult place right now. So that's something that requires some prayer. But it's exciting to see, and, and it leads me to a, to a point. Anybody know what that box represents? You ever, ever heard discuss this, this box? What's that? It's called the 1040 window. Basically, from Western Africa through Asia at 40 degrees north and 10 degrees north, that's the least evangelized area of the world, where I don't remember if it's two-thirds, but I think maybe something like two-thirds of the world's population lives there, and the vast majority of people who've never been reached live in that area. And there is an appropriate emphasis on the 1040 window, reaching into the 1040 window. But I'd like to make a suggestion, and that is... Um, although we certainly need to send missionaries to the 1040 window as the Lord opens that opportunity for us and as, uh, as leading us in that way. But I do believe that in many ways, folks who are reached in other parts of the world, like Latin America, like those who've been reached already in the Philippines and other places, often have advantages in getting into the 1040 window. Number one, they're not used to the riches that we're used to. So their lifestyle does not take as big a hit when they go there. Secondly, because of the politics and everything, often now... Although there are many advantages to being American when you're traveling abroad, there are many situations where it's not an advantage, right? Where there's prejudice or where there's opposition. And so, and so I really believe that maybe the, that I really believe that the Lord is going to use people from these other places to reach into the, to the 1040 window. And that's our real desire to see the, to see the Latin American churches not only reaching other Latin American countries, but reaching in to the uttermost parts 
uh, of the earth. That's, uh, that's Dan Wackety, and I put that there because he's a true yoke fellow. <laughs> and uh, there we are in Costa Rica uh, because uh, there, is a, um, there, is a, there is a ministry there where the Lord's given us an opportunity. That's uh, Yvonne and Lizzie. Lizzie's the daughter of our director of our institute in Mexico, uh, in Hermosillo, and she married Yvonne. They met at Bob Jones, and then they've gone back to Costa Rica, and they invited us to come down and do theological training there for them. So the, we went two summers ago, and I just heard from Dan that they would like us to come back uh, next year as well. That's another opportunity to, on the mission field. This is in Mexico, uh, um, and it's the, um, it's the Alpha and Omega Bible Institute, and the Lord opened up an opportunity uh, for me to go and teach on eschatology uh, this last June. And uh, you, may, you may know the Angeles family, um, I believe you support them. They're doing translation work. They were there at the conference. That was a great blessing. That was my, I put him in, this dear brother was my ride. He drove me a lot of the way from north of Mexico City to this place way in the mountains and scared me to death. <laughs> Those roads go in the mountains and then the cliffs go straight down. But uh, the Lord was with us and he got us there safely and we got back. This is in Cuernavaca with some uh, folks and we were doing some more theological training there. The fellow in the back row, third from the right, is Pastor Lucas. He would like to set up a permanent training center where men who are getting involved in training can come there and through the internet get connected with varying train, various training opportunities and have a place they can go and have resources. And so we've been discussing that possibility as well. Now, I, I wanted to mention that we have a burden not just for, for reaching out into Mexico, but also for the Hispanic population in the United States. And this is Marcos Sapien and his wife, Ana Lidia. And God put it in his heart some years ago to go to the Denver area. And so we worked with them. He had been a graduate of our master's program at, at the Institute, and his church was in favor of it. So we worked through getting them the permissions to come with a religious workers visa. And so they helped the church in Fort Collins develop a Hispanic ministry. Um, there's another brother from Mexicali, Mexicali and he, um, the Lord is, is uh, he's, he feels burdened um, to go to North Georgia and help out uh, in that area. And so we're working to help them. But I would ask a question though, and, and the question is essentially this, um, where are we gonna get the workers, right? Obviously the Lord has told us to pray for laborers, but when it comes to Hispanic ministry in the United States, the biggest problem is a lack of qualified trained Spanish speaking leaders. I regularly get contacts from, from pastors and missions that we'd like to start something, but we don't really have somebody that we can, we can develop. So where are they going to come from? We should pray. Absolutely, we need to pray for laborers. But we also, I believe, the Lord would have us to work to multiply laborers. And so let's give that problem just a little bit of thought, because it actually may have more to do with you than you, than you might think. This is Alex and Leah Mian. He was saved in the ministry in Phoenix, in that church, uh, through their bus ministry. They had, a, they had an outreach into the community. He was a bus kid, we would say. And he was saved as a child and went through that ministry, got some training in, in Hermosillo, got some training in the United States, and he's now pastoring uh, a ministry uh, under a church in Charleston, the Charleston area of South Carolina. I mentioned Pastor Steve Rubio. Steve and his, Pastor Steve and his brothers grew up in Phoenix. Their first language was, can you guess? They grew up in Phoenix. Their first language was English. In fact, what he tells me is in his home, 
his father would speak English to them, and they, I mean, sorry, his father would speak Spanish to them, and they would speak Spanish to their father. Their mother would speak Spanish to them, and they would speak English to their mother. And they would speak English amongst themselves. But the Spanish they knew was sort of street Spanish. It wasn't educated Spanish because they never went to school in Spanish. They went to school in English. So um, uh, um, Pastor Steve and his, I don't know if I've got that there or not. No, that, not yet. Pastor Steve and, his, and his, one of his brothers went to the Institute in Mexico, and they got their theological training there. Now they've come back, and, pa and Pastor Steve, he can fully relate to the culture of the first-generation immigrant. He can also relate to the culture of the second-generation Hispanic person. And th that, that's not the same. See, when, when, when people come to a different place, they start to assimilate to the culture, but the children assimilate much more rapidly than the parents. And therefore, you start to see changes. So, it, so a, a Hispanic church is a mixed kind of a church. It's not just, it's not, it's not an, what we'd say, an American church, you know, quote-unquote American church. It's not a Mexican church either, even if it's 90% people of Mexican heritage. It's this third thing. And yet, and so I believe that the second generation Hispanic is probably the best qualified from a cultural and language standpoint to really effectively minister. Okay. Now, how do you reach them? Well, this is uh, Brother Adrian. He's from the ministry in Phoenix, and he was down at the institute there uh, studying, and now he's, he's come back and he's helping out in the ministry. Um, so is uh, uh, Brother Stephen Enriquez as well. He's come back uh, to the ministry. Um, the, the fellow on the left is, um, is named um, Noe Vasquez. He's an American. He grew up in California. He's an American citizen. He went to the Institute of Mexico, and now he's back pastoring a ministry in, um, in, uh, near San Luis Obispo, California. Um, the fellow to the far right there is uh, named Jesse. He's from Washington. He got interested in Hispanic ministry, so he decided to go study in Mexico to be able to train and prepare, and he's back now helping with the Hispanic ministry in Washington, in Washington State. What's the idea? What's the idea? Before I get to this question, where do you find Hispanic young people in, the, in this country? This is, a, this is a legitimate question, not a rhetorical question. Where do you find Hispanic young people? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Now, not in every single community do you have the same proportion of, of people from different ethnic backgrounds, but there is no one place. It's not like you just go to Los Angeles or you just go to Texas or you just go to Phoenix, right? I've heard there's a very large Hispanic population in Painesville, for example. And, and what kind of churches have Hispanic young people in them? Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of, like, ethnically, though. Obviously, Hispanic churches do, but guess what? So do English-speaking churches. Because they speak English, <laughs> right? They're, they're, they're into American culture. They can be reached in the same way you reach out to any young person, right? The problem, I think, oftentimes is they're not aware, even if, if the Lord gets a hold of their heart about serving him, they're not necessarily aware of the tremendous tool that God's given them and the tremendous opportunity to reach a group of people that are really open to the gospel, right? Because their thinking is all toward assimilation. That's what young people do. They assimilate to the culture. And sometimes the ministries they're in aren't clued into it either. So one of our great burdens is how do we help ministries identify and reach out to those young people and disciple them in a way that if God is calling them 
to this kind of a ministry, they will be properly prepared. And so our desire is to work together with churches and also with educational institutions to be able to do that. Now, here's the question I want to ask. Which piece is always the most important? How many of you like jigsaw puzzles? You do jigsaw puzzles? Okay. Which piece is the most important piece? Someone said the last piece, right? The last piece. Yeah, that's true. And you're one of those people that take a piece and put it in your pocket. So you can be the, put in the last piece. And then you find out there are four pieces missing because everyone did that, right? Corner pieces, maybe, side pieces, you know, the little blue, whatever, right? Well, I, I think the answer to that is the next piece. Because if you can't put the next piece in, then you, all progress has stopped. And, and I think that's a good illustration of what we're trying to do in the ministry. See, everybody's got a piece to put in. Every ministry every, has, a, has a piece to put in. Every institution, every individual in the church has gifts and abilities that God has given you, and he wants you to use it, and he wants to put your piece in. But maybe you're the next piece. Now, obviously, I, I can't say, oh, well, that means that God has called you to do this specific thing with regard to a specific ministry, because I don't know that. But I know God's given you a puzzle piece, and God wants you to put it in. So part of our obligation is to ask the question, what does God want us to do? And in that regard, if you would please turn your Bibles to Romans 12. This is kind of scary to me. <laughs> this pastor is preaching on Romans 12, but I'm not going to actually expound this passage. <laughs> I would just say get the tape. Right? It shows how old I am. You don't have tapes anymore. Download the message. Go to Romans 12.1. I want to think about application. This is the... the um, they let me know, it asked if I would give a devotional, and I like that. It gives me a little flexibility um, here. I don't have to do a heavy-duty exposition. We don't have a whole lot of time anyway. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I want to just ask two questions about this text. Ask two questions about this text. And the first one is, how can I do that? How can I do that? And the second one is, how do I do that? How do, and, and these are just, these don't exhaust the possibilities. The answers I would like to suggest to you don't exhaust the possibilities, but they're certainly worth meditating on. How can I do that? And you're saying, well, what's, why do you have that question? How can I do that? Well, uh, I don't know if you struggle with this. I do. You know, you, you, you do something to serve the Lord, and, you know, you, 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 you were, you're, you're praising him in, in church, and God is blessing, and you're feeling blessed while you're singing, and then all of a sudden you cruise through a whole verse, and you, what, totally gotten distracted, right? Or you're thinking, oh, that sound pretty good, <laughs> right? And so now you're thinking I'm praising yourself, right, instead of praising the Lord. And so you bring your mind back and say, no, I'm going to praise the Lord, right? Or you talk to somebody and, about the Lord, or you try to, and then you think after you're done, oh, that was terrible. I should have thought of this, or I was way too timid, right? Um, uh, I think if we're sensitive to what we, and we want to be what God wants us to be, we're, we're very tempted at times to focus on how we're messing up. And we certainly all mess up enough to where we, if we were really 
reflective about it, self-reflective, we would realize that in fact we, we aren't what we want to be, we aren't even what we ought to be yet. So then how do I really do this, right? How do I present my body a holy, acceptable to God? How can that be acceptable to God? Well, believe it or not, and we're not going to turn there because it's more of just the discussion of the overall book, but I really believe part of the answer can be found in, of all places, the book of Leviticus. I love the book of Leviticus. Um, and let me explain why that is. In the book of Leviticus, right, there, there, you, start out, right, you start out with the, with the five basic sacrifices. God starts out telling Israel how to perform the main sacrifices that they're going to be required to perform on a regular basis there in the tabernacle. You'll remember in Exodus, after Israel's brought out of the land and God causes them to enter a covenant with him, the very next thing he tells them to do is to build this structure, this tent-like structure that's going to go around with them and where they're going to worship him. And the word there that's... Um, that means worship is the, is the word for to serve. You're going to serve me in this tabernacle. And it's interesting because they were serving Pharaoh in Egypt. They were serving the Egyptians, and now they're going to serve God, but they're going to serve him in this tabernacle. And then God, in these first seven chapters of the book of Le Leviticus, tells them the basic things, the basic sacrifices that they're going to perform. And in, and in those chapters, you find five basic sacrifices. There is the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering. There is what is sometimes, what, there's the meal or the grain offering. Then there is what's sometimes called the peace offering or sometimes called the fellowship offering. It's literally shalom offering or it's related to the word shalom, the offering. And then there were two offerings that involved sin, the, the sin offering and then a guilt or trespass offering, which had the idea also not only of of dealing with some sin that someone committed, but also making some kind of restitution when they, when they defrauded somebody, either with defrauded God in sacrifice or defrauded their neighbor in something. They had to make restitution as well as offer the sacrifice. Now, the first three offerings um, are called, uh, and it's translated, the offering of a soothing aroma. A soothing aroma. The, 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 the King James translation has a sweet-smelling savor. The idea is of something that's pleasant to God. Not that the odor was itself pleasant, but that the sacrifice represented something that was pleasant or pleasing to God. The sacrifice pleased God. And you remember from Romans 12, what does it say? This is a sacrifice that's acceptable to God or well-pleasing to God. The sacrifice we are to offer is a sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. And there were three of the sacrifices in Leviticus. And you, and you, know, you notice that Paul is using... Levitical language. He's using sacrificial language to describe how we're to serve God with our lives. So there's an allusion back to the sacrifice in the Old Testament. So there were three sacrifices, and one theologian puts it this way. There were three sacrifices that presupposed that the relationship was okay between the offerer and God. And if it wasn't, you had to give a sin offering first or a guilt offering first. So the order was always sin offering and then burnt offering because you had to get right with God before you could offer something to God that's pleasing to him. And one mistake we make when it comes to sacrifices is we make the mistake of thinking that sacrifices are only about sin. And that's not true. The Old Testament had sacrifices and offerings that were about 
about our service. They represented our service to the Lord. And that's what we see in these first three offerings. So what's going on in these offerings? Well, let me, let me make one more point. And that is, he says, give your bodies, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That suggests to me the whole burnt offering. Because the whole burnt offering, the whole animal was burnt on the altar. It was a complete consecration or dedication, as it were, of that animal to the Lord on the altar. Unlike some of the other sacrifices where the best parts were burned on the altar, and in the case of the sin offering, the other part was burned outside the camp uh, to represent other things. But the, but the burnt offering, what it represented was the individual Israelites or the nation of Israel, it represented their complete giving of themselves in, to God, to Jehovah, right? He had rescued them from Egypt, and they belonged to him, and now this is, we are wholeheartedly devoted to you and to your service, right? And, of course, we preach it that way for Christians, right? We preach it as putting your life on the altar. We even use that terminology nowadays, very appropriately so. So it was a complete and utter dedication to the Lord. The second, just to, just to round out the picture, the second offering was a grain offering, and I believe that represents a, um, uh, not just dedication of yourself and your whole self to the Lord, but also your active service for God, doing things for God in the ministry, in service somehow. And then the third offering, the peace offering, was distinguished by the fact that the offerers also ate part of it in the temple area. And what that, I believe, uh, shows is fellowship with God. We're to have fellowship. So what are the three things in those three offerings that God? He wanted their complete, utter devotion to him. Absolute. He wanted their service. He wanted them to serve, serve him with their lives, to, to work for him. And he wanted to have fellowship with them. So those offerings, in one sense, represented what God expected of Israel and of the individual Israelite. But they also represented something else, because offerings and sacrifices are a substitute. The, 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 the temple worship was given to picture realities, and one of the realities it pictures was, I can't do that, I don't do that, therefore I need a what? I need a substitute. So the animal goes instead of me. So what, the, what that represents is the fact that God will accept a substitute for your failure to do that. It's not just that we, we have an obligation not to sin. We have an obligation to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, don't we? That's burnt offering territory, isn't it? But who does that? You're, you're, you're serving the Lord. You're trying to do something for him. And, and constantly are coming your failures and your shortcomings and your lack of zeal and your lack of interest and your, your inconstancy in the promises you make to God. And it can be very discouraging. But God accepts a substitute now, of course, those, that burnt, that animal was not the ultimate substitute, just a picture. But who's the substitute? Jesus Christ. He didn't just die on the cross to, for, for God to forgive us our sins. He lived the perfect life. It's called his active obedience. He lived the perfect life in your place. So that God accepts that on your behalf and is well pleased. But then there's a third thing. The, the offering represented what Israel should be. The offering represented the, the substitute, which makes up for the fact that they failed, but then the offering also represented their actual service to him. Because God accepts the substitute to make up for my deficiency. Can I put it that way? To be the perfect 
service that I could never render and never would render. Therefore, I'm free to go for it. You ever seen a ball team that was really going for the victory versus a ball team that was trying to avoid losing? Which one plays better? See, when you, when you start thinking about losing and, and how am I doing and I'm messing up, you don't have the liberty to go for it. Jesus Christ wholly fulfilled this verse. He gave himself completely to the Father. He said, I always do those things that please the Father. He gave himself as a whole burnt offering in my place. And because of that, and because I'm in him, guess what I've got the liberty to do? I can go for it. I can serve him. So how can I give everything that I have to the Lord? Because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. That's how. And so I can enthusiastically serve the Lord. And what do I do if I mess up? Confess it, forsake it, get up, dust myself off, receive the forgiveness of the Lord, and do what? Go again. Try again. That's how you do it. That's how you can do it. How do you do it? Let me just make a suggestion here because of, um, and there's much more we could say about this. The word body there, I believe, is a metonymy. What do I mean by that? Well, you can ask the question this way. Okay, God wants us to give our bodies to present, to make available. The same word in Romans 6, where we're either presenting or not, we're presenting and yielding our members as tools of righteousness. Okay, so um, he wants my body. But does he just want my body? How about my mind? <laughs> you know, how about my emotions? Right? The idea is when he's got your body, he's got everything. And so the point is everything I am, I can use for him. Everything that's ever happened to me, I can use for him. Have you had a bad experience in your life? Are you going through a trial? God can use that so that you can be a blessing to other believers and also have a platform to be a witness to other people. God will use everything I have that's legitimate, that's legitimately from him. Everything I have, everything I've ever done, everything I know. And all I can do is suggest this because... But, but I would suggest that I think that in the area of missions and in the Great Commission, one of the great areas we missed it is we have not thought creatively how we can use the gifts, talents, abilities, time, effort, energy, zeal of the non-professionals. Right? So the idea is, okay, we're just lay people. We sit in the pew and we pray for the missionaries. And you're the professionals and you go do this. And we'll, we'll support you while you do this. How many of you have ever heard of an accounting mission trip? We had an accountant come out and help us set up our books and get us on QuickBooks and get us all. And he saved our little office staff, which is one person, hundreds of hours every year. It was an accounting mission trip. I think professional people, people who are involved in communication, people who are involved in organization. Can I tell you one of the biggest needs we have in missions? People who can organize and figure out how to get stuff done and how to help you get stuff done. Right? People who can organize, people who can administer. That's true in your church, but it's also true in missions. And that's one reason we're so passionate about networking, because networking gives you an opportunity for many people to give their input. So without going into any kind of detail, let me just ask you a question. Are you the next piece? Are you the next piece when it comes to reaching your Jerusalem? 
Are you the next piece when it comes to reaching around the world, when it comes to missions? I really believe if we said, Lord, here it is. Here's all of it. Just all right there. Everything about my life, it's all yours. That if we do that, God will start leading us step by step into ways we can invest who we are and what he's given us for his glory. But the question is, the question is, are you willing? Are you the next piece? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your scripture. Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ is our substitute. Lord, please, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might serve you faithfully with everything we are and everything we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.